This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. To spread grace, speak truth, restart, this is the kingdom. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the and campaign church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. What you know, good Chris? Oh, it's uh, very exciting times. Uh, oh, yeah. Why you say that? Doing well. Well, I don't know. I feel like I'm getting some uh, out of a little bit out of the fog. Uh, coming out of the campaign and getting some clarity about where to go from here. So I'm excited. That's always a good thing. And, and it takes some time after a, a tough campaign, man. You've been so into it. Uh, uh, all the noise, all the smoke. Uh, once you, you get out of that fog, man, hopefully uh, things get better and, and you can kind of really assess some of the lessons that were learned and, and kind of a path forward, man. So I completely understand that. I haven't run myself, but I've been a, a part of campaigns that, didn't end the way I wanted to. And so I do understand the kind of fallout and just gathering yourself and getting back to a good space, man. Um, for me, man, I had a pretty good weekend. I got the opportunity to preach at Messiah Community Church in Baltimore. Shout out to them. Shout out to Pastor Rod Hairston for uh, giving me that opportunity. A really good group of folks and, and enjoyed my time, my short time in Baltimore, but did enjoy that. Now, on another note, I, I was a little disappointed this morning, though, man. I got up. So I usually get up at five in the morning to go work out. And every now and then the the early group will be there and there'll be nobody, no employees show up to open the door. So I'm up at 5 a.m. I'm waiting at the door and nobody comes, meaning I, I wasted that time. So I went back home, tried to get a little nap or whatever, but, you know, just, just wasted time. So my day didn't start off great. But in general, you know, the week has been going fairly well. So I hope everybody else out there is having a better week than me. Chris? Yeah, that's, you know, I usually just run outside. So the. uh, You can't miss with that. Yeah. The the owner. Yeah. The owner here has promised that, uh, you know, morning and evening won't fail. So. (laughs) Got you. Got you. Well, man, as always, y'all know what it is. We want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Uh, We've got some really interesting topics coming up today. Y'all know what to do. Grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. Let's get started. Conservative evangelicals who come disproportionately from the South have a real opportunity to turn the page on generations of terrible sin. Why are black Christians still so politically separated from the white church? Because for centuries, all too many white Christians viewed their black brothers and sisters less through the lens of a common faith and more through the bigoted lens of a different race. It was white identity politics that separated the church. 
and its lingering legacy is still a roadblock to unity today. Those are not my words. Those are the words of the ever thoughtful David French, a brother who's taken an inordinate amount of flack for pushing back against the white evangelical allegiance to Trump. And here in this article, he's explaining the political division in the church in part. And and it's an important note in his latest article, which he calls the God Gap. All right. The God Gap. Now, you know, Chris and the folks who were listening last week, I think it was last week or the week before that we talked about the demographics are destiny idea that a lot of progressives had been espousing for some time. Basically, the idea says that changing demographics or the country becoming less white would create dominance for the Democratic Party like never seen before. Basically, America would become California because it was becoming uh, less white. Now, David French uh, provides one reason why the why the demography is destiny idea doesn't quite seem to be coming into fruition. Uh, He says that in 2020, the Democrats got whiter and the Republicans got more diverse. And now all the assumptions are scrambled. Donald Trump lost the popular vote by a wider margin than he did in 2016, but he did materially better with Hispanic, Asian and black voters. In fact, Trump did better than Romney with non-white voters in 2016, an improvement then mainly attributed to Hillary Clinton's weakness, and he improved on his showing in 2020. So those are, you know, that's something that we talked about a little bit, uh, I think it was last week. Uh, Josh Kroshar uh, described the re- this realignment that uh, French was talking about as a seismic shift. Dems do better with white college graduates but they are losing Hispanics. Hispanics have a strong and substantial difference with the white progressives who run the Democratic Party. Some of those differences include they don't agree with defunding the police. They don't agree with them on the transgender athletes issue. And they don't agree that America is a terrible country or even a terribly racist country. Those are some of the differences they have. Now, French wisely doesn't think that the issue just has one cause. But he does think that one factor is the huge God gap in the Democratic Party. He says this God gap is driving a wedge between white and non-white voters. And I've, you know, Chris, we've talked about this. I've experienced some of this in my uh, interactions with the Democratic Party. You have a lot of progressives, not all, certainly not all, but you do have a lot of progressives that look at traditional Christianity with haughty eyes, as as the Bible would say. Basically, they view religion with a sense of superiority and disdain. Um, and so I've had that experience myself. But, but again, it's not everybody. Um, French goes on to say this, though. He says that overall, people of color are more likely than whites to be Christians and are pretty devout Christians at that. Some 83 percent of black Americans are absolutely certain that God exists. No other group comes close to this figure. Black Christians are far more likely than white Christians to describe religion as very important in their lives. Of all ethnic groups, black Christians are the most likely to attend to attend service, pray frequently and read the Bible regularly. They also are the most likely to believe that their faith is the place to look for answers to questions about right and wrong. And they are, by uh, large margins, the most likely to believe that the Bible is literally is literally the inerrant word of God. Uh, I think, you know, that's something that I see within my church. And I think there's something to that. I mean, and that's what the statistics are showing us. He follows up by saying that the disproportionate secularization of white Democrats 
represents a danger for the Democratic Party, for the country and for American religion. Why is that, David? He says that America will remain extraordinarily religious for the foreseeable future, uh, which means there will be a disconnect between tens of millions of voters and the Democratic Party. That's why it's a problem for the Democrats. He also says that the danger to the nation is a version of the same danger represented by ethnic identity politics. If there's one thing that can fracture a nation as thoroughly as ethnic division, it's religious strife. Okay. I thought this was a good article, uh, Chris. I thought it was a thoughtful article. And I agree with most of what French is saying. And I think I just have a a little bit of a different take or maybe just a little different emphasis. Uh, But I want to first start by agreeing with the reality that white white evangelical identity politics basically created the political divide in the church. I think that's just straight up facts. That's unspun history. If you want to know why black Christians don't want to be on the same side as white evangelicals on any issue, just pick up a history book. It's not it's not rocket science. And although Trump has done much of their bidding on some major issues, the unjustifiable allegiance to Donald Trump has only widened that divide in the last few years. Last what? Five years. Now, you got to understand this, that you know, some folks and some white evangelicals initially said that they only voted for Trump because Hillary was such a bad option. But now many of them want him to run again and still believe the big lie about a stolen election. Again, this is not everybody. But if you look at the numbers, it looks like it's the majority of white evangelicals. And so I think on that point, uh, Fritch and I uh, agree on that point. But here's where my take takes a turn. And maybe it's only a difference of of emphasis. I'd I'd have to ask him. In my estimation, Chris, Democrats and the progressive establishment have done a remarkable job over the last decade, decade or so of neutralizing the God gap. The God gap, in my humble opinion, should be much wider given the extreme stances that Democrats have taken on a lot of social issues that are counter to biblical principles. The gap should be as wide as a football field, two football fields, right? Uh, But it's not, and that's not by accident. So progressives might not understand the attachment that some uh, people of color have to religion, but I think they've done what they needed to do to overcome or subdue that gap to a large extent. Or that problem to a large extent, right? Because despite crazy policy, despite despite crazy language, Democrats have been able to keep most of that voting coalition together. Now you talk about they're losing Hispanics, but they're not losing black voters to a large black Christian voters to any large extent. And not only have they been able to keep that coalition together, they've been able to eliminate the God gap in elected office. Yes. A significant percentage of people of color disagree with white progressives on religion and a lot of social issues. But guess what? None of them who disagree are in elected office or the ones that may disagree and be in elected office have learned to shut up. So through identity politics, the left has neutralized the God gap to a significant extent. What they've been able to do is elect a diverse group of people who look like you, but vote like them who believe like you maybe, but legislate like them. And if you disagree with me, me, name one nationally recognized person of color in the Democratic Party who challenges the progressive social orthodoxy. Don't worry. I'll wait. 
the God gap is relatively nominal because Christian Democrats have been persuaded to shut up about their differences. Emphasizing those differences has been presented as politically inexpedient. Christian Democrats went silent in the same way that white evangelicals went silent on Trump's corruption and immoral behavior. The left, in my opinion, has brilliantly has been brilliantly effective at minimizing the impact of the God gap. I almost believe, Chris, that they could literally promote child sacrifice. And because the evangelical public witness is so toxic and the and, and the Democrat Christian is so captured, they could get away with it. The political divide in the church is so deep seated, so fixed, so ingrained that it allows both parties to get away with murder. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that the article from French is, uh, I think it's important, right? Because I think that it's something that both parties need to be looking at. And I think that the black church needs to be looking at. Um, because I think that French recognizes maybe more than a lot of people inside of the black church, the potential for the black church in terms of shaping America's political future in the next several election cycles. But what it will take is for us to do something different from what you're describing. Here. One of the things uh, that I think the, the left and, and Democrats have done so well is that they figured out how to be stylistically church, right? There's not a uh, there's not a Democratic politician across the South and the Midwest and probably a fair number on the coast who don't visit a whole lot of churches doing their campaigns. You know, the Barack Obama singing Amazing Grace and uh, all these different things. So they know how to be stylistically church, um, and that has helped them to avoid some of the substantive questions of policy. Uh, and legislation. And, you know, at the same time, you have those that divide that you talked about in terms of uh, the identity politics, certainly born out of, uh, you know, white evangelicalism. And, and Republican politicians just are not nearly as good as being uh, at being black church stylistically. And so there's this there is this God gap and, and there's a big opportunity. You know, I guess that's what my emphasis would be. French sort of positions it as an opportunity for both parties. And I think that's certainly there. Right. Because, you know, as he lays out, uh, the left can learn. There's still time for uh, progressives to learn how to be less uh, sort of pejorative about strong faith. Uh, and as an opportunity for the right to do away with some of the hardcore identity stuff and, and move closer to, to black Christians. But I, I would suggest that more than anything, it's an opportunity for the black church to actually have a real strong impact on American politics uh, going forward. Right now, there's a ton of conversation about the the Hispanic vote, because that vote is seen uh, as a swing vote. Uh, that's a community of folks who are seen as, you know, they might go Republican or Democrat based on, you know, how they are interpreting issues from their community's perspective. And in my view, there's no reason for uh, for the black vote, especially the black Christian vote, uh, to not be similarly sought after. Uh, it shouldn't be locked into one place or another. Uh, and so while there's there's a, a strong need, and I would encourage both parties to be trying to learn how to 
relate to the black church. I think there's an opportunity for the black church to learn how to be a bit more savvy in terms of where we place our political allegiances um, and not get locked into one space or the other, even though we know that both of these spaces have some real deficits in terms of how they relate to our um, issues in our community. Mm -hmm. Because again, I think you hit on a very good, good point. And again, I think the progressive establishment has been very savvy in being able to say, hey, we, we may have differences, but none of our differences matter because they're so bad. They're so bad that to voice your differences is going to hurt you. And so just kind of let us run thing and handle things. We're fighting them. So we got to be on your side because we're fighting them. Right. And, and it's, it, they've been able to silence uh, the church in that way. And, and I think we've fallen for it. But I, I, I would push back on the idea that they don't know. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like they haven't really addressed this guy gap. I think they've been addressing the guy gap for a long time. Uh, you have folks who are going into churches. You have somebody like here in Georgia. We have Jen Jordan, who's running for attorney general, who back when she was running for state senate was basically throwing folks under the bus for being Christian. And then the next weekend, go into a black church and sing the hymns and all that stuff. And get, they know they know they need it. They know there's a difference because they've been attacking folks for it. But they've been very good at isolating the people they need to isolate and making sure that that God gap doesn't show up in elected office, making sure that that God gap doesn't end up pushing people away from the party as much as it could. So it's not that I don't think the God gap is there. I think that it's nominal, especially when it comes to the black community, because of, you know, identity politics and all that other stuff. But to your point, I don't necessarily see progressives really changing that stance anytime soon. I don't necessarily see white evangelicals, right, or conservatives changing their stance anytime soon to where it would be more palatable for African-Americans, which means the black church as this sleeping giant needs to step up and force the change, right? The the power is going to concede nothing, right? But until you step up and kind of force somebody's hand, then you might see change in that space. But but it's on you. I can't blame that on anybody. Folks is running game just like they're supposed to run game to get what they want. And if you don't push, if you don't push back against that, then you just the one being gamed. So that's that's just the difference I see. I think I think he hits on a lot of good things. I think that gap should be wider and that it's been neutralized in a very uh, effective way. Yeah, I think you're 100 percent right. I, I can tell you. So I was in um, I was in Indianapolis the last couple of days. Um, meeting and, and helping folks, you know, at least trying to help folks with organizing, you know, around the uh the protection of life issues that they're dealing with uh in uh in my neighboring state. And it was so glaringly obvious that what was missing from the uh from the discussion on both sides of the of the debate was the presence of of black Christians, right? Um, which you do have pockets of in in the state of Indiana, uh, obviously, but there's a way of talking about life that was just absent from you know the the pro life side, you know, and there's a way uh, of talking about um, you know sort of the social issues that that drive women toward abortion uh, on the left that just was missing from uh, much of the conversation. And it's like, man, if there were, if there was even a small group of black Christians who weighed in on this issue, I think they would have an outsized impact. 
Uh, and that, that's just one sort of like very practical space in which, uh, you know, you could have like a, a significant impact, uh, a strong voice, uh, because you have a community of people, you have institutions associated, uh, and you have this perspective and this way of talking about issues, uh, that I think actually reaches beyond in this moment, uh, the black church. But we actually have a well curated and, and it's a older and deeper lexicon and approach to talking about issues where we don't have to necessarily make it up. Like we're not coming up with these ideas. Uh, we've been, we've been analyzing, uh, policy and politics through the lens of justice and biblical truth for generations now. Uh, and it's a, it's a, it, that is the practice that could, could capitalize on this God gap and nobody knows how to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. quite like the black church. So it's a huge opportunity for us. Um, yep. but like you say, like we have to be the ones responsible, uh, to step into that because I think French is more so presenting, uh, the opportunity for the left and the right. But like you said, I don't see folks who, if you got a, a program that's working, I don't see folks moving off of it. Uh, you know, just to make black Christians happy. Yeah. I mean, that's real. And, and I'm one of those folks, Chris, that uh, I don't take politics too personally. Right. Um, I try not to take a whole lot of stuff personally, but I will tell you, I take it personally that every time a black Democrat tries to step into elected office, tries to run for something, they've got to fit into this secular progressive mold. I take that. Per- yeah. I take it personally that many, if not most of our elected officials completely have kind of pushed away some of those convictions that they should have taken in office with them. I, I, I do take that personally. So mm-hmm. hopefully we'll see a shift and hopefully we know some folks who can be the catalysts of that shift. We'll be right back on the church politics podcast. Well, guys, we just got out of a conversation about the God gap. Uh, if you want to go back and forth with us about what you think on the God Gap, you can get in touch with us on uh, patreon.com slash church politics. We would like to hear from you. And I'll tell you that uh, medium is about to get even more robust. Uh, I'm not going to tell you why this episode, but but hang on and we're going to tell you why, because there's some big things coming from the and campaign. And I think you will be interested in them. Uh, but time to move on. Uh, Chris, an an article uh, was recently released in Science Magazine that suggests one of the most influential studies on Alzheimer's and dementia might have been fraudulent. It's a big deal. Science Magazine did a six month investigation into the issue, and they came to, to the conclusion that critical elements of this study were likely manipulated and again riddled with fraud. The initial study attributed cognitive decline to specific proteins in a person's body. But apparently the study could never be replicated because the researchers' findings were fake. The research was fabricated. Images included in the initial paper were manipulated. They were using fake brain images and so on. Meanwhile, though, here's, here's the kicker. Meanwhile, the U.S. government was spending tens of billions of dollars on research based on this erroneous study. Billions and billions of dollars based on an erroneous study, not just erroneous, fraudulent, purposefully manipulated. Next, for years, many believed that depression was caused by an imbalance of serotonin, 
basically a chemical chemical imbalance. But this study was also flawed. Many, if not most antidepressants deal with that imbalance of serotonin in the brain. However, a new study has found that this chemical imbalance is not responsible for depression. Per capita, the U.S. has the highest uses of antidepressants. And some of these do help people. We're not I'm not a scientist. I'm not saying none of this helps people. But it is based on a, fra- a flawed conclusion and a flawed premise. And in, and in 2022 alone, the sale of antidepressant drugs was at $13.5 billion. So in both of these instances, you have a lot of money at play, but you have very flawed science underneath. This is something covered very well, I think, again, by uh, uh, Sagar on um, breaking points. But Chris, I just want to get your thoughts on this fraud within science and what's going on and, and how Christians should react. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is something that uh, a lot of people have talked about for a minute, but these uh, these two articles bring some evidence to bear. Uh, and it's, it's something that I try to explain to people all the time, right? Which is that as biblical Christians, we absolutely believe that there are many things that we can learn from the observation of the physical creation, right? Like the scriptures tell us that, right? That uh, even what can be known about God, uh, it can be observed in the physical creation that God created. Uh, And so when we push back on anything that is supposed to be uh, undergirded by science, people automatically think that, well, if you're a biblical Christian, then you don't believe in science, right? Uh, And it's not so much that you don't believe in science, it's just that scientists, just like every other human, are fallen uh, people and and fallen creatures, and therefore can be manipulated uh, by money to then manipulate their efforts in all types of different ways. Uh, and and what am I saying? I'll, I'll sort of uh, cut across the room here because uh, you have a lot of things that are going on in some of our social debate, uh, right? I, I brought up, and I don't want to like over abortion this episode, but I did bring up uh, the life issue in the previous segment. Uh, but that's something where people insert a lot of ideas about science. Uh, but again, like this is what scientists are saying. And we have to look and make sure that the scientists that are saying this are not being impacted by other uh, things. And on, uh, you know, gender and sexuality and all these things where uh, folks want to lay this heavy, you know, sort of um, what does the science say? Uh, And if you disagree, you don't believe in science. Uh, It's not that you don't believe in science. It's just that you can't take every scientist. at their every word, just because they said it, um, because just like every other field, uh, there is the influence of corruption, there is the influence of money, there is the influence of power, and that can corrupt how people operate within their field. And science uh, is is not above that. There's nothing magical about physical science that makes humans more you know, uh, uh, in integrous than, than they actually are. Yeah. And I, I want to reemphasize your initial point, which is I see science as a gift from God, right? 
Christianity should not be anti-science, right? The more we learn about science, to me, the more we, we learn how complex the, this universe is. And you see the, the design, that there's a design to this. Like this didn't just happen from something blowing up and it all came together like this. There is a, a design to the world and science gives us insight into that design. Okay. So we should, we should understand that as Christians. But to your other point, around, especially in the professional class, there's this feeling that folks should just shut up and trust the experts. The expert has spoken, shut up and go along with it, right? Shut up and just trust the scientific establishment as if the scientific establishment is science, right? They're, no, they, they, they're doing science supposedly, but there's a lot of politics and money and all kinds of other things that are, that are a part of that. So people who are always and this is not this is not a show where we're going to get into a whole bunch of conspiracy theories and all that stuff. But I will tell you the idea that just trust the science because a scientist has spoken and that's it, regardless if it makes common sense, regardless if it goes along with other studies or anything like that. You can't do that. We should not be that. You know, the, the Bible talks about being simple and how the simple believe everything. No, we're not simple. We don't just go along and believe everything because it's in a certain journal, because it came from somebody within a certain establishment. We can't do that. Right. Um, But this speaks to for those Christians who are in science, it speaks to you not just becoming a part of the system, not just going along with what everybody else in your uh, field is doing. You got to be the salt and the light, even if you're in in that space. This ain't when we talk about being the salt and the light, we talk about changing things. We're not just talking about people who are running for office. We're not just talking about what you do when you vote. We're talking about what you do in your profession. Because as someone who is in the professional class, the professional class very easily just goes along with their industry. The the professional class very easily just goes along what was in that journal in your industry. And that is very, very dangerous. We get into that class and whatever the leaders in that class say, we go there. And because we're supposed to be the smart people, everybody's supposed to just believe us, even if it doesn't make sense. We've got to have the courage, the fortitude, the diligence, right, to stand up against, sometimes against our industry, against the establishment in our trade and say, you know what, that's not right. Because I I don't, I mean, out of all groups, the professional class is very easily swayed by the top experts in their in their in their class or, or by, you know, whatever uh, journals they're reading. Very swayed and very gullible when it comes to that stuff, just because the people talking to them are supposed to be the smart people. And that's yeah. a problem, Chris. Yeah. And, and there's so much on the line when you disagree. Right. Like because it becomes like in different industries, professional industries, uh, sort of. Uh, a, a huge group think and almost like a, a, a guild. So usually the person who's the expert is supposed to be the smartest. They're also the ones who are holding a lot of purse strings. They influence a lot of opportunities for advancement. Uh, you know, so uh, there's a lot on the line uh, when you disagree. And so it, it is, uh, it, it, it takes a willingness to put some of that on the line uh, to disagree. Uh, but I love what you said, Justin. I think that. And let me say this yeah. real quick, because this this point, and I'm I'm gonna let you. I just want to emphasize this point for those of you who wonder why Republicans went along with Trump, 
for those who you wonder why Democrats go along with all this abortion stuff, it's the same reason that you go along with whatever's going on in your profession. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I think that's that's a hundred percent correct, and it's uh, you said something I think uh, puts it um, perfectly. Uh, you said we can't act like the scientific establishment is science, right? So that disagreeing with the scientific establishment is disagreeing with science. They are not one in the same. Uh, and, you know, the same thing can carry into all these different spaces. If you're in civics and politics, you know, the sort of social justice establishment is not justice. Right. And so if, if you disagree mm -hmm. with the social justice establishment, that word. doesn't mean that that you're out of step with justice. Right. There there are times when the scientific establishment is actually out of step with science and the social justice establishment is out of step with justice. And whatever those ideals are that you are, you're you're pursuing in your particular um, you know, field. You know, I, I think about folks who are doing uh, mental health care. Right. Like if you get out of step with that. Uh, that establishment, that doesn't mean that you're not, you know, uh, providing care because that establishment is not the manifestation of care. Uh, and so th making that delineation between uh, the value uh, and the actual manifestation uh, of those good values is really important because there's, there's really only um, one, like it, it's, a, it's God's throne right where the foundation is righteousness and justice right like those that's where we see the manifestation of all that is good the rest of us are just down here trying to do the best that we can man i'll, I'll leave it at that we will be right back on the church politics podcast are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives as a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The Ann Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. I was reading an article in the Associated Press that was interesting to me, Chris, and, and here's what it was saying. It says that in a nation faltering along seemingly every conceivable every conceivable divide, there's a shared desire among Democrats and Republicans for a new generation of political leadership. The conversation is most pronounced when it comes to the White House as Trump considers another campaign and President Joe Biden confronts skepticism about his ability to amount a reelection bid in 2024 when he is 82. Uh, a quote here we have is. There's just a sense of like 
that rematch between these two old guys seems ridiculous to people, said Sarah Longwell, a Republican strategist who conducts almost weekly focus groups with voters across the country and and across the political uh, spectrum. Uh, Last month, the Democratic candidate uh, uh, for governor in South Carolina, Joe Cunningham, proposed not only term limits, but also age limits for office holders, saying it was time to end America's geriatric oligarchy, man, of politicians who are trying uh, to stay in office past their prime. There's been a lot of talk, uh, you know, among my friends about the age conversation. I don't I don't think we should put, you know, I don't want age discrimination. I don't think we need to put limits on that. I think the voters need to decide whether they think somebody is capable or, or not capable. But it is a discussion that needs to be had. I mean, when you talk to uh, millennials, when you talk to others, there is a feeling that boomers don't like to let anything go, that boomers don't like to pass uh, the baton. And that's causing a lot of problems with in politics and in everything you can think of. Chris, what's your what's your thoughts on seeing fresh faces in politics? I mean, the truth of the matter is people knew how old Biden was and just thought that the alternatives, even folks on the Democratic side, were just not vi- they just weren't people they wanted to vote for. Uh, the other part of it, it is we know older people vote more than younger people. But what's your take on this idea of needing fresh faces in politics? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, one, let me say that I, I think that age limits is, is probably uh, in my view, a bridge too far, uh, but you certainly have uh, a situation right now where people who have power don't like to easily let it go. And people are getting, like people are actually just living longer uh, than than they used to. And, and so, you know, I, I think that it's, it's very important that we get new people into politics, but I think that the way to do that uh, is actually doing things in our political system uh, to make it more difficult for one group just to hold on to power and never let it go. Um, because if you if you only look at an age group dynamic, uh, you're missing the fact that right now our uh, our two party system uh, is is designed in such a way that whoever has the power is really really difficult to to cause them to relinquish it, no matter how sort of just defunct their governing capacity becomes is really hard uh, to to snatch political power away from anybody in the system, uh, and so we see we see the manifestation of that um, in the uh, the sort of uh, geritocracy that you kind of see manifesting in the presidency and in the Congress. Uh, but certainly, people did vote for Joe Biden, knowing who Joe Biden is and how old he is, because they didn't want Donald Trump. And I think that there would be a whole lot of people, if there were a Trump-Biden rematch, who would vote for Joe Biden again. Um, and But the reason for that is that <laughs> people observed, and I would argue rightly, that Joe Biden was the only other person who could win. Like So it's got to be him. Uh, and so if you don't have uh, more states moving to things like ranked choice voting, uh, somebody figuring out how to do the miracle of campaign finance reform. I don't know how that ever happened, but, um, you know, if you don't see those things happen, you, you just stick with a political system, uh, wherein people hold on to power for much longer than they should. And 
and it's usually not related to their capacity to govern. Uh, it's just their capacity to gain and, and retain that political power. Right, right. And again, I, I'm going to put the onus firmly on voters. The system may not be the like exactly like we wanted to be. There may be things that do that do keep people in power more than they should be. But at the end of the day, we've got to vote. Yeah. If you're a younger person, you want to see different people in power. You need to galvanize and or you need to organize and get people together and get them voting. Yeah. Uh, make them speak up before voting happens. Make make their voices heard. You can't just sit back and say, "Well, look how they do us. Look who's in office." We, I mean. Make a change. Do something. Join an institution, an organization that's trying to make the change, because at the end of the day, it is in our hands. These people that get voted in over and over and over again, that can change if, if, if there's only, you know, if there's not only 25, 20 percent of people going out to vote. Right. These things can be changed and we need to take a look at it. But certainly I think there needs to be some fresh leadership in different spaces. How we get there is kind of up to us. To see what we're going to do. Anything else, uh, Chris? I'll just say real quickly, because you mentioned it, um, and I always try to jump on this, but we do need to like get beyond this anti-institutionalism. Because one of the reasons why the society is setting up the way that it does is because right now, the only institutions that are really functioning and growing are government and corporations. Uh, and there used to be a lot of other institutions, families and churches and civic organizations and a lot of other institutions uh, that could get into the game and put pressure on those two institutions. And when we allow those other institutions in our society to fall apart, uh, and it's just, just up to every uh, person individually to try to change the world, that is hard and it just ain't ever going to happen. So uh, I get where we come from in our generation. I'm part of this generation and I know the some, some of the, the harm that many of the institutions uh, have done. But we need to be in the business of revitalizing institutions, not just abandoning them, because, you know, that's where you build power. That's important. And, and I have I have some good news. Uh, as a as citizen of this country, you're not just a helpless victim. Hmm. That's a good thing. Yeah. You're not just a helpless victim. You can get people together and make things happen. I don't care what nobody says, what nobody who supports justice says or anything else. You are not in this country just a helpless victim. Doesn't mean you don't go through things. Doesn't mean there aren't some things stacked against you. You can make the change, especially if you got prayer, especially if you got a voice. That's it for the Church Politics Podcast. Y'all know how we do it. Uh, and camp, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, and camp. Well, I'll let you. Oh, Lord. I said, Kingdom. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com CT.